the ability for somebody in any minute of their day, at any hour of their day, to decide I'm going to do Jewish with other people right now, no matter what their location is, is nutso to me. Like that's unreal. We all have JCCs in our pockets. Welcome to Trending Jewish, the uh, Jewish podcast about everything. Today, Brian Schwartzman is here solo. Rachel Burgess, my fabulous co-host, is out spanning the country, promoting uh, on behalf of our organization, Reconstructing Judaism, making connections, raising money. So I am here solo, and I feel I feel a little bit like uh, the first Wayne's World movie when Wayne gets up and walks out and Garth, who's so comfortable being on camera with his with his co-host, all of a sudden is alone and kind of looks at the camera with a deer in headlights, like okay then. But um, it it will be good. Um, so, um, hi listeners, we we want to hear from you. We want to hear your comments. We want to hear your ideas for guests and topics. Um, write to us. Uh, send us a message through our re- website, trendingjewish.fireside.fm. It's a great way to be in touch with us. If you haven't already, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Castro, and most other places that uh, you can find podcasts. I actually use Podcast Addict on my uh, on my Android, and um, and rate us and 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 tell people about the show. That that would be a great a way to keep us going. So today I'm I'm really excited. We're we're uh, moving into a topic that I think is going to be a focus of ours in in this next batch of episodes, looking at uh, the intersection of Judaism and technology and the ways that the internet is impacting, changing, uh, posing questions to Judaism and the contemporary Jewish community. And I've got a great duo of guests to to discuss this. Um, we recorded a great interview, really excited, uh, eager to share it with you. I have got the co-creators and co-founders of Judaism Unbound, which is a podcast. Another, uh, We're doing another podcast uh, about a podcast. Um, and these guys are really asking uh, profound questions about uh, the current and uh, future state of Judaism, the Jewish community, Jewish civilization. So um, we've got Daniel Liebson and Lex uh, Rofeberg. Um, Daniel Liebson is the founder and president of the Institute for the Next Jewish Future, which uh, hosts and uh, produces Judaism Unbound. He spent six years as executive director of the University of Chicago Hillel, and three years as director of new initiatives at Harvard Hillel. Dan is a 2009 Avihai Fellow and has also received the Richard M. Joel Exemplar of Excellence Award. Before devoting his life to working for the Jewish community, Dan spent five years as a law professor after clerking for Judge Michael Bodine of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. He lives in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago with his wife and two children. Lex Rofeberg is a Jewish educator and rabbinical student who serves as Strategic Initiatives Coordinator of the Institute for the Next Jewish Future. He is uh, currently pursuing his rabbinical ordination at the Aleph uh, Rabbinic Program affiliated with the Jewish Renewal Movement. He comes to Judaism Unbound after a two-year education fellowship at the Gold Ring Woldenberg Institute of Southern Jewish Life based in Jackson, Mississippi. He has had articles published by JTA, MyJewishLearning.com, Shema Journal, Jew School, Progressive Jews and Views, and others. He grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and currently lives in Providence, Rhode Island. And Lex has delivered an Eli talk, sort of the Jewish version of TED Talks, on this very topic, Judaism and the Internet. And you can find that on our episode resources, which will be on our homepage. So without further ado, here's Dan and Lex. Thanks for having us. And yeah, thanks uh, for having us. Glad to hear. Uh, as we record this, it's uh, March Madness. So advancing the ball is particularly good this this next couple of weeks. Isn't that we, a football metaphor? Or can you say it with that? With I, you know, it's more helpful in football to gain to advance the ball than basketball. You can advance the ball all you want in basketball. You still might not score, but it's still, you know, it's still part of the process. I feel like, you know. 
I didn't even know when March Madness was, other than it was in March. So that you see the differences yeah. between Lex and me, which right. is part of the magic. I right. went to yeah. basketball unbound. I went to UMass, which was a big, big rivals with URI back in back in the nineties. Yeah. Probably, yeah. probably not so much now, but um, yeah. so the 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 topic I I chose and that that I hope my co-host who is uh, out raising money for our organization today um, hope to. Uh, really tackle is is something you you both have uh spoken about you know at, at great length um regarding the the impact of of technology the internet on on Judaism Jewish life Jewish community and um i i don't think i'm i'm nearly as 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 forward thinking as as the two of you i i i still have a little bit of a reactionary strain that i'm i'm bemoaning the amount of time people are looking at their phones, not just, you know, alone with their thoughts or, or, or you know, not looking at screens instead of books. I'm, uh, I'm thinking about what's lost. But, but both of you really seem to be looking at what's, you know, what can, be, what can be gained, what has been gained, what could be gained. So I guess I just wanted to start the conversation broadly and ask, um, you know, how do you, abro- how do you both approach this, this big question of what does what does this technological revolution and access to information mean for our evolving Jewish community? Um, okay. You guys yeah, can flip a uh, coin if you, if you want. No, yeah. We, it's funny. We, on our own podcast, we, we're usually like, we're asking, we're asking the questions. So it's easy. But, um, uh, by the yeah, way, I'll, by I'll the way, I know way. as a, re, as a reporter, I, I've, I was a, rep- a print reporter for, for, um, about a dozen years, and I know it was the hardest thing in the world. The few times I was, I was interviewed. It's like a doctor being a patient. Right. So I, I greatly appreciate you subjecting yourself to to this because I'm sure of I course won't, I won't do of it course. as well as as skillfully as you you guys do. So. No, I'm sure you will. Um, but so yeah, okay. Digital Judaism. What's what's the deal? Where's it go? Uh, yeah, big question. But you're right. We do think about it a lot. Um, and I, it's this particular passion of mine, and I think, um. It stems from a couple places for me. One is that I am maybe a rarity in the world of Jewish professionals in that I've only ever lived in what I would consider small and mid-sized Jewish communities. The, the biggest Jewish community I've ever lived in is Milwaukee, where I grew up, which is, from my perspective, pretty big. But when you're comparing it to New York or San Francisco or even, even Philly or Chicago, where the two of you are, it, it's small. And so as a result of that, really every element of what I do Jewishly and and how I think about the Jewish world is refracted through the lens of somebody who doesn't presume there's that much Jewish around, like who who doesn't presume that there's a synagogue in every neighborhood and lots and lots of Jews, even in the public schools, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, that lens, I think is at the core of why digital Judaism is so important to me because there are so, so many people out there for whom digital Judaism is actually their first stop. It's not their third or fourth or sixth stop after the things they've got locally, but it's their first. And for some of those, because they're even, they're in much smaller communities even than I am. I'm in Providence, Rhode Island now and Milwaukee too. Like that, there's enough going on that you can find things to do. Um, but there are some people that are much more isolated. And when I lived in Jackson, Mississippi, I got a little bit of a lens into what it's like to live in a community with only Jews in the three digits, as opposed to four or five digits in a community. Um, and that's hard. And and it's especially hard if what you want Jewishly is anything other than the most normative, most sort of, for lack of a better term, mainstream kinds of offerings. And And what digital Judaism provides is a location of Judaism that is universal in in the most in the most direct sense of what universal means. Like we're not yet at a place where the internet is absolutely everywhere in the world, but it's most places that people inhabit. And so by building up Judaism there, we are in effect building up Judaism everywhere that there are Jews. And so for me to be a Jewish professional and see that primarily as a threat to what exists and not as the greatest possible opportunity we have is like a really huge mistake. So that like, that's sort of where I'm coming at it from. I didn't fully answer like what I see as the biggest uh, strengths and like 
scary things about it, but I'm sure we'll get there, but that's sort of where I'm coming at with it. Yeah, and I would add just two things. One, we had an incredible guest on our podcast maybe about a year ago named Rabbi Juan Mejia, who is a guy who comes from Colombia and he is doing all this Torah study and things like that in Spanish for people in Central and South America who are Spanish-speaking Jews or Spanish-speaking people who believe they have Jewish origins and they've taken an interest in being Jewish again and they're coming to know Judaism through the internet. It's the only possible way for them to come to know Judaism because there's basically no Jews where they are. And it's just been this, it was just this incredible story of how that kind of expands and how it introduces Judaism to people who may not have had Jewish ancestry, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just this incredible story to reinforce what Lex is saying about the potential power of digital Judaism or the internet in places where, like Lex is talking about, Judaism isn't as ubiquitous as it is in certain large cities. The other thing for me is to think about the potential of digital Judaism. And and that's where I think a lot of us often make mistakes in how we think about something that's actually relatively new. So I often use the example of digital photography and that when the digital photography chip first came out 10 or 15 years ago, especially being in a cell phone, the pictures that it took were really bad. And if we were having this conversation about, you know, digital photography will replace film photography, we would be saying, oh, what a tragedy. You know, this is terrible pictures and it's going to be worse. But we know from the history that digital photography very, very quickly caught up and now in many ways provides a much better photography experience to people than film photography ever did. And it, and for all sorts of reasons, it's now able to be used by so many more people uh, that never engaged in film photography at all. And, and that's what I have to say about digital Judaism, that we're only at the beginning and we have to look around. I mean, Lex is more positive than I am about what's going on today already. And that may be generational. That may be that Lex is more in touch with what's happening in a way that that I'm not. Um, But even if we take my sort of Luddite approach and say, well, you know, it's still not that great. We know that the world of digital technology in general is accelerating in ways that we can't even imagine or can barely imagine today. Some of it could go in a dystopian direction, but some of it could be incredible. And I, you know, for me, at least the thing that I can sort of wrap my simple-minded thinking around is uh, virtual reality. And, and I can easily imagine that very soon, much faster than we imagine, we're going to have access to virtual reality in such a way that we put on a pair of goggles and some other gear, and it really feels like we're in a different place. And once that technology is solidified and ubiquitous, I think that the difference between a digital Jewish experience and an in-person Jewish experience will be so much smaller than we imagine it today that we can actually imagine it being extremely fulfilling, even if your gauge for fulfilling is what's available in person. So I think it's really important to, therefore, A, be excited about the potential, B, get into that, that landscape early, um, so that we can start to to work there so that when the technology catches up, it's not that then Judaism is trying to jump in there when, they start, when the, the landscape is already taken up by all these other things that are going on. And, um, you know, and, and just to really judge it by its potential rather than by its current reality. I mean, I think one way to, to get into this, and, and Dan, you, I think you touched on it a little bit. I, I call it my, my flying car question. Like, Dan, certainly when... When we were kids, you probably remember we we imagined we would have we would have flying cars in the future. I mean, it was it was the right. the the, the high point of Back to the Future too, and we didn't uh-huh. get that, but we got things we we never imagined. We got computers in our you know in our in our pockets on our on our phones. Um, so I, I feel like there's a little bit of that with um, with Judaism and digital technology. I feel like there was there was definitely this talk and writing in Jewish circles about, about prayer and, and, and communities moving online and, and, and there was going to be digital congregations and nobody could wrap their heads around that. And, um, nobody really understood it and correct me if I'm wrong, but we, we haven't really gotten that, but we've gotten a lot of other things that, that nobody expected. Is that, is that, I mean, I, so I wouldn't say I would correct you, but I would, so basically what I think you illuminated and what 
and what Dan illuminated a little with his photography example is when we think that the new development is going to lead, so internet in this case, or any new development, when we think that the onset of a new technology means that things that we have had for a long time are going to replicate themselves in that new technology. So in this example, that congregations are going to go online and that's going to, and so now the thing is going to be instead of in-person congregations, it's going to be online congregations. When we think it's that straightforward of a transition, that's the mistake. Like right. uh, for me, I never would have, uh, so there, I will say there are places uh, and I call them places, by the way, even though they're, they're websites to me, they are as much of a place in, in many senses, but um, there are, there are places that are seeking and are online congregations. They're not big. And I agree with you that they haven't become a norm uh, that, that thousands and thousands of people are doing. That said, there are Jewish places where people are congregating online. And so whether those are congregations or not, they are, they are now a norm. And I'm thinking mostly here of what, what people affectionately call Jew book. Um, but just the, everyday increasing map of Jewish Facebook groups that have become part of just the minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day rhythm of people's lives. And I really want to underscore that this is not a small, this is not a small marginal thing. This is like, I'm in, I'm on obviously on the high end of, of participants in this world. Um, but I'm in, I don't know, probably seven, 10 of these groups and there's ton there's at least a half dozen of them that have thou, like thousands of people like a thousand two thousand six thousand people um and that's huge the 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 ability for somebody in any minute of their day at any hour of their day to decide i'm going to do jewish with other people right now and be able to do that no matter what their location is is not so to me like that's so like that's unreal like we all have jccs in our pockets um now are those jccs as good as the jcc like in our actual community probably not almost definitely not but there's also things happening there that i can't find locally so i can be in a jewish facebook group already for very specifically the set of people who are in interfaith relationships feeling upset at the way that other people in social justice activism are talking about in, folks in Jewish interfaith relationships and want to have a space to share around that particular thing. Like I'm in one, I'm in a group loosely that, um, that's a few hundred people. The idea that I could walk into any community in Providence and it's not a, it's not a knock on them. It's not that Providence communities are doing something wrong. The idea that I could find something in person specifically catered to that need of a person in an interfaith relationship who's involved in Jewish community, who's upset at how a particular corner of that Jewish community relates to interfaith conversation. Like that's, that's not going to happen most likely. And if it is going to happen, there's going to be, you know, three or four other people in, in my local community that share that unique positionality. When you've got the entire locus of the Jewish world all visiting a particular place, Facebook, you can specialize and and make distinctive all of these particular kinds of groups. And it's creating a depth and a specificity of Jewish community that I think we've never seen. I don't think we've ever been able to have, I mean, this is not, this is no longer me, but you know, a space for specifically trans masculine Jews of color. I mean, like th th these are, these kinds of, of groups now exist because we have a sample size of millions of people to work from, as opposed to a sample size, even in New York of like 1 million and really spread out over a bunch of boroughs, you know, less than 1 million. So what do you each think are some of the most exciting, innovative things happening now on, you know, in the Jew Jewish digital sphere? I think that you have to start with Safaria. We had an extraordinary interview with Brett Luxbeiser, who is one of the co-creators of Safaria a few weeks ago, a few months ago. And he, what what I think is so important about Safaria, which for people who don't know, is basically a, a web-based hub where you can access essentially any Jewish text, and or that's their aspiration at least. And what I think is so important to point out about Safaria is that 
I don't think it could have been created by a Jewish professional because a Jewish professional looks at the wealth of Jewish texts and says, oh, wow, this is overwhelming. This is so much. I mean, the Jewish, the Jewish uh, canon, the Jewish uh, text uh, library is just so overfilled that it's just overwhelming to imagine that somehow we could um, create some kind of online way that people would be able to access any Jewish text in seconds. Whereas for Brett, someone who worked at Google for a while, his experience of this was that it's a small problem. I mean, Google has just uh, put the entire world's information in an index. And so the idea that there's basically a thousand important books and we can find a way to digitize those and translate them and make them available to everybody, that's a small problem. And that's why I think something like Safaria is really incredibly exciting because it allows what I often talk about, that that we often talk about this kind of um, deficit in Jewish education of Jews today, that's some kind of crisis of education. And, and I have two things to say about that. Number one, the education in Judaism in the past was only for the most elite in society, and the vast majority of people had very, very little Jewish education, and the only Jewish knowledge they had was what they picked up from their practices at home, which was significant, but not uh, any vast by any uh, stretch of the imagination. And so today we have the potential for literally every Jew to be Jewishly educated more than I think most Jews were in most of the past. But something like Safaria gives the opportunity, I think, for Jews to have access to Jewish knowledge faster and more immediately and more deeply than 99% of rabbis throughout Jewish history because rabbis were restricted to what wow. they had learned in yeshiva and what books they happened to be able to afford on their bookshelves. Now, because of digital technology, any Jew, any non-Jew can access any Jewish text and ultimately in incredible translation. And the fact that Safaria was able to put the resources together to buy the uh, perpetual license to Steinsaltz's English translation of the Talmud, which is an incredibly uh, accessible translation of the Talmud, is just stunning. And so I think that um, Safaria is important in its own right, but it's also an incredible example of the potential for digital technology to make Judaism, I think, more accessible and more powerful for more people than it's ever been before in its entire history, which turns the crisis narrative on its head. So the question becomes, what other dimensions of Jewish life can be safariized? Yeah, I agree with that. And there's so many... I'd start by saying, with the risk of hyperbole, everything that's Jewish on the internet excites me. I mean, like even the things that I, that appall me that are, that are Jewish. <laughs> like, like to me, I mean, to use a, a reconstructionist term, it's about building a civilization. It's a, it's about creating a map of as much of the Jewish as we can and making it available because here's, here's what goes unsaid all the time in Jewish life. There are tons and tons of people. We all know multiple of them who are walking around feeling insecure about their, for lack of a better term, like Jewish knowledge. That's people will tell you, like, oh, I don't have that much Jewish knowledge. Like, if you in 1973 felt like just arbitrary year, like felt like I don't have that much Jewish knowledge, you would have to do one of the following things: you'd need to walk into some sort of public space where somebody may see you, um, and like purchase a book, like a Jewish book, or you would need to you would need to go to your rabbi, ask some questions. You would have to make yourself vulnerable in in a certain set of ways. I'm making it sound like really scary to do that. It's not the most scary thing in the world to like go and talk to a rabbi, but it is a level, it, it's, a, it's a hurdle you have to surmount. You would need to walk out of your house, ask somebody that is not yourself for help to achieve this goal of like deepening your connection, whether it's to what you would term your heritage or your religion or your people or your civilization. Like, Today, you have that same insecurity. You go to Google while you're procrastinating at work for 12 minutes, and you look up whatever it is. Oh, it's March, so Passover's coming up. And I, oh, I remember there's some parts to the Seder. What are the parts to the Seder? You, a lot of people aren't going to want to ask, what are the parts of the Seder? Because they're going to think that makes them look dumb. They're going to think um, that 
they should have just known that already that how dare they be a Jewish adult and not have just like memorized those. It's like every year you talk about it. But like what the internet does is it creates sort of an implicit permission to not know and, and to go somewhere and, and to take that not knowing and change it into knowing, which, which is such a, I mean, it's a gift. It's a huge gift because we have so many layers of Jewish insecurity around, around knowing. And like the best part of our culture is that it's about, about knowing and studying and learning and, and all of that stuff. It's great. But it means that the people who aren't at the very maximum level of that feel somehow deficient. And honestly, who, I mean, we're talking in an RRC context, show of hands, anybody know any rabbis themselves who feel like they're like not where they want to be in certain realms of Jewish knowledge? Of course we do. This is, this is such a common thing. We all want to know more. And so having every Eli talk, for lack of a better term, I mean, these are, you know, Jewish Ted talk. Every one of those that is available is a gift. Every, every myjewishlearning.com entry, every, every, forget just the Jewish stuff, every Wikipedia page that, that is on a, a Torah portion. There's one guy, there's an article about him somewhere who went through and did all of the Wikipedia pages for every Torah portion. And like, to me, he, I, I don't even, I don't think he's a rabbi. That's one of the most supreme Jewish services of our time. If we were going to list the most, the, the people who have had the most impact on the most human beings on the planet through Judaism, he's one of those people in my lifetime. Because who, who of us hasn't gone to a Wikipedia page, whether we're a Jewish like professional or a, somebody giving a Devar Torah and we want to quick review something, whether we're not and we are looking for our first way in and we don't have a translation of the Torah in our house. Like whatever it is, th- that's like such a gift. And, and so I, we already are at a place where we're taking that level, that stuff for granted, which is good. Like I want us to be able to take a, but, but when we take a step back and are like the quote unquote Jewish internet, isn't just, you know, the stuff that may conceivably steer people away from in-person communities, which I don't think that's really going to happen. Um, but it's, it's all of these gifts that we add on top of, of Jewish life as it is like, it's hard for me to look at that and not get all mushy and gooey inside, to be totally honest. So, wow. So I have two, I think, are very interlocking questions, but it is kind of the dreaded double, double, double part question. We um, do that all the time. <laughs> it's a, it's a trick of the trade. So how do you think about, demonstrate, measure impact of a digital, digital source and how do you convince philanthropist funders that that these these endeavors are worth uh, investing in? I was going to ask you. <laughs> let's figure it out right here. Yeah, let's figure it out. If any philanthropists are listening, um, I, I want to start by one comment that, in a little way, kind of uh, evades the question, but goes to something that Lex was talking about, um, which was when he said, "You know, I'm excited about everything because." everything has potential to for everything is good and important in its own right to someone. And it has, and, and we don't know what has the potential to, to really take off. And uh, Lex in his Eli talk talked about this as a migration as, you know, to, to analogize it to, you know, the Jews are moving to a new place. We, we know the story of the Jews moving to America and now the Jews are moving online. And think about the beginning of Jewish life in America. We don't really know, right? A lot of what was going on in me can read Jonathan Sarna's book and you can get some flavor of it. But, you know, basically this mass of Jews arrives in America. One of the amazing things is I think for the first 150 years of Jewish life in America, there was literally not a rabbi on the North American continent. And so you had these 150 years of Jews kind of, you know, bumping around and figuring stuff out and moving west. And there was all kinds of stuff going on. Some of it, um, I'm sure, was great for a few people and and sort of went away. Now, was that unimportant because it went away? No, it actually sustained those Jews through their migration. And so I, I think often we imagine that the only thing that has worth is something that's going to ultimately itself become the seed or the nucleus around which the future Judaism will grow, as opposed to seeing if a, if a few people are engaged in something, it has inherent value because it's keeping those people in the game. So 
that's, I think, a little bit unclear for a philanthropist how to think about it, because the question ultimately for philanthropy is, yes, but when should I supplement with my money that activity as opposed to letting the, you know, if it works for the person, they should pay for it, you know, and, and to what extent should we kind of be infusing more money into the system and where in order to have the highest impact? So we do in some way want to measure impact. But the, the first thing that I put out there is that, you know, we should also be careful thinking about that if we understand what's going on to be a migration and to be this very early stage, you know, and then along comes someone like Isaac Mayer Wise, who you know, comes in and looks around and sees what's going on and starts to see connections between them and then and starts to also see the importance of the migration in a way that people hadn't before, right? People saw the migration to America also sort of negatively, that it was the, the golden land, but it was also a place where you can't really be Jewish. I mean, that's what they were saying in Europe and why many people didn't come. But then Isaac Mayer Wise comes around and sees, hey, we can actually recognize this as Minhag America, as the, the American Judaism, right, which is a new Judaism in its own right. And we can start to give that definition. So I imagine at some point somebody will come along and look around at what's going on in digital Judaism and start to tie things together and try to make proposals as to how things might fit together. And then we might be able to start to say, OK, so now that somebody's here trying to help us systematize this we should evaluate it as a system and, and then we can use sort of classical measures of impact and, and, and whatever. It, the question to me, I, I think about it a lot, sort of maybe like pharmaceutical R&D or something like that, where you, you just run a lot of experiments and you know by the nature of the thing uh, that 99% that of them are going to quote fail and some of them are gonna fail in, the, in what you thought that they were trying to do, but succeed in some other way. Like I think Viagra was originally supposed to be some kind of blood pressure medication and it didn't work so well for that, but it became, I think, the best-selling drug in history for a different reason. And so, um, you know, <laughs> I was thinking like, what would be the Jewish Viagra, which is sort of an interesting... <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> but it would allow Judaism to flourish, right? Um, and and so the, the question is kind of, um, at this stage, I would I would propose that we are at the stage of the uh, R and D and of the kind of um, pharmaceutical. Like we we just have to um, invest in the process rather than in any particular attempt. And then you know, and then and then, the, but then to go back to your question. I think ultimately the question is okay. So once if we reframed it there, how do we see? what should be assessed. And, and here's what I would submit as an alternative to the traditional point of view that says what impact looks like is large and growing numbers of people that are being affected by something. I would say that in this world in which it's, it's experimental and it's new, much more important than numbers is the passion of the people who are involved. If we believe that the people who are involved in this new thing are similar to the people who are uninvolved, as opposed to right when we're thinking about, let's say, somebody who's really looking for more, you know, more stringent Jewish law or something like that. There are people that are really passionate about that. That we call them ultra orthodox. Um, the thing is, is that we know that they are so profoundly different from people who are uninvolved in Jewish life that even though they have a lot of passion for this, it's probably not going to translate over to those other folks. But if you see, look at something like I don't know, Moisha House or, or some kind of um, initiative, that's not a digital one, but, some, but talk about you know, Lex and the Facebook group for people who are married to somebody who's not Jewish or, or whatever, and that the people in that group are intensely passionate about it. And you say, wow, well, that's actually the, the trend that's coming. I mean, that's gonna be the vast, it already is the majority of, of the Jewish population. It's, it's only gonna get more so. So if we've actually found something that's generating enormous passion around this group, that looks like the people that are not involved. Um, that that I would say, let's invest in that. Let's 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 see now. Let's let's help. First of all, let's help that deepen, and let's help that get really, really even better for the small group who's already really passionate about it. And then let's help them, kind of whatever you want to call it, do the marketing or do or, or figure out how to get the other people to to find out about it. Yeah, I mean, I, when I reflect on this question, and what I'd say is Dan, Dan is the person who's most directly answering it for us in terms of, you know, grants and etc. But like, when I think about how we how we paint what we're doing now to appeal to funders, 
so there's two sort of routes to go. There's funders that we think of as sort of quote unquote, the funders that are funding Jewish life um, in all sorts of different ways that I mean, these are foundations, these are federations these are, like that are, their purpose is to look specifically and they've been doing this. And then there's people that aren't funding Jewish life. They have money and they're funding other things. Um, do I think that what, do I think that what's being created on the Jewish internet for lack of a better term could appeal to members of each of those groups? I do, um, for very different reasons. But the, the other piece I'd say is that there is a challenge because th this relates once again to what we said before about like the transition from one era into the next and how, how those switchovers or handoffs happen, which is if our metrics for measuring the success of something are about how many people gather in a shared space to do something, then the internet's failing. Like, like in, in most senses, like we're not yet at a virtual reality place where literally the four of us on this call right now are in the same place. And so by many metrics of how we think of a gathering, this isn't one. We're in, we're in different places. And so if a funder's idea is to, is to support efforts that bring Jews together around Judaism or bring people, I mean, some of them are not just focused on Jews, bring Jews and others together to channel elements of Judaism into the world. Like if like, like the internet isn't really doing that, but if the measure is we want to fund things that are having a deep impact on massive numbers of people, just as many people as we can. And, and whether they're localized in particular gathered spaces is not necessarily the primary thought. Then the internet is destroying everybody else. And I don't say destroying, I don't say destroying like the others. I'm saying it's, it's winning. Like just, we can release a podcast. I mean, we're not the only ones. We, we release, we release a podcast every week and because we're available everywhere, we get thousands and th we get thousands and thousands of downloads a month. We get in the five digits of downloads per month. And I don't know many local Jewish, and I'm not saying that to, to, to like say we're amazing. Like there's other podcasts that are also doing this and it requires a heck of a lot less work to create a podcast that reaches 10 or 20 or 30,000 people a month than it does to create a Jewish organization in any locality that does. I mean, I, I don't think that the most successful synagogues in the world have 40,000 people walking in per month. Like that, it's, it's just something that's incredibly challenging to do. So when your metric is how you touch people, and now the obvious response is, well, the 40,000 people that are downloading our podcast a month, they're not doing something as deep. I can see like, like they're, they're entering into a 45 minute experience and hopefully it affects them. And some of them are downloading, you know, multiple levels, whatever it is. Um, it's different. We have to, we have to be able to shift what, what success means in order to recognize the successes that are happening. Because if we, if, if the only, it's a circular, like if our, if the way we value success is based on what congregations or other in-person Jewish organizations have done to succeed, then the stuff that isn't bad is going to succeed less, if that makes any sense. Right. Yeah. I'll have to admit, we don't quite get as many, uh, as many uh, downloads as you, but we're, we're working on it. So, <laughs> um, but you probably get a bunch for the, I mean, for the amount, amount of person hours that are going right. in, like imagine a person out there putting in however much time you do, like, would you, would you reach even a hundred people if you were just doing that, you know, part-time as a part of your job? Like, I don't think most people would. So it's, it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dismiss that. But right. I, I would add one piece to that, which is just, if, to take that further, first of all, like I would say that 45 minutes engaged in a serious Jewish conversation is actually more impact than most Jews are getting, even when they walk into a, a Jewish space of some kind. Even, even if they're sitting there for three hours, I think that most of them aren't actually engaging so deeply. So again, that's not something against the um, organizations of what they're doing. It's just that what they're doing is actually not necessarily what these folks are looking for. And what's astonishing to me, and again, we just sort of bumbled into this, but 
what's astonishing to me is two guys like literally in a basement can create something that that tens of thousands of people are engaging in every month and what does that mean for the future you know what what does that look like once other people catch on and again you know people lament the closing of various synagogues for example and i would say two things one is that there was sort of a bubble in the in the 50s 60s 70s that basically too many synagogues were built that, that it would just you know it wasn't a centrally planned thing and so there wasn't a big strategic plan about it it was actually sort of it felt like the right thing to do at the time because there were a lot of jews moving to new places i mean talk about migration there were a lot of jews moving to the suburbs and they had the wealth to build these synagogues and for various reasons they had the interest in doing so but the problem is is that there was a huge financial and capital investment made in those organizations so it feels very terrible now when they have to close but that's still a different issue than imagining that somehow in a world in which synagogues are closing, that means that fewer Jews are going to have meaningful Jewish experiences. I think that it sort of looks that way because the meaningful Jewish experiences in a new way haven't all been invented yet. But we start to see, again, I say, you know, we, we start to see synagogues, for example, uh, or some of these newer type synagogue adjacent organizations like Labshul in New York that uh, are live streaming their services. And it's great to watch a service on a screen potentially, but sometime soon you're gonna be able to put on a pair of goggles and you're gonna feel like you're in that service. And at that point, I'm not sure that it's a negative thing. You know, at that point you're saying that literally, right, tens, hundreds of thousands of people might be able to experience this incredible service. Or our guest Dan Ain recently talked about how He's really interested in the American, what he calls the great American art form of the religious revival, right? This kind of uh, one-time deep moving experience that you have with kind of a traveling preacher. But the way that digital technology turns it on its head, it says the preacher doesn't have to travel, we can travel. So we can go around to, you know, you could imagine that there are 10 amazing religious type experiences that are available locally in different places in the country, but because they're all live streamed through virtual reality, I can, in two months, you know, I can visit eight of them. And every Shabbat, I can have this incredible, new, fresh experience with some of the most talented practitioners that, that ever were, right? And, and to me, that's just an incredible future to imagine. I think... I think each of you set me up beautifully for my for my final question. I'm I'm, I'm standing under the hoop alone, and you and you pass me the pass me the ball. Um, you've used you've used di- digital technology, you know, to it to um, advance uh, Jewish Jewish conversations and 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 get get your listeners and guests involved in deep thinking. I'm just wondering how this whole this whole process this whole venture has has impacted, changed the two of you, changed your perspective on on the Jewish future or just or just um you know your perspective on on the medium of podcasting. I often talk about my personal story that I grew up as the son of a conservative rabbi and I moved to Israel when I was 14 and I in Israel uh, was put into the Orthodox school system and kind of lived in an Orthodox world for for the four years of high school. And I always tell that story that, you know, I hated every minute of all four of all three of those experiences, you know, and and I was this kind of uh, person. I remember having a conversation with the rabbi of the school that I attended in Israel. And he sat me down at the end of 12th grade and he and he knew I was going to college in America. And he said, um, you know, I hope that when you go to college, you're going to find a person to study with who, you know, who wants to study Torah just as much as you do. You know, and I said to him, well, that's not going to be a problem because I wanted to study Torah, not at all. And I think that I had this sense of myself in many ways as, you know, that my Jewish future was going to be sort of on the periphery of the Jewish community, if at all, you know, because what it was or what I had experienced wasn't for me. 
And there are ways in which over the course of my adult life, I, I, I did come in and, and had various jobs in the Jewish community and I came in and out of it. So it's not quite as simple as that, but in some deep identity way, I always felt like an outsider and I felt like that was going to be my lot in life. And because of digital technology, I feel like I'm in the center of something, you know, that, that, and it, and it's not because of having built that something, it's literally because a technology allowed me and Lex to have a conversation that we wanted to have for ourselves. I mean, the truth is that Judaism Unbound wasn't meant to start as a podcast. It was meant to, it was started as a book that we were trying to write and we felt stuck on the book and we said we had to do more research. So let's do it in the form of a podcast because that'll be fun and, and people will be more willing to talk to us, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so literally all Judaism Unbound is Lex and me having the conversation that we really wanted to have and inviting people to have that conversation with us. I mean, our guests. And then it turns out by total fluke that tens and tens of thousands of people are interested in, in having that conversation. I don't think it's just that they're interested in hearing us have the conversation. I think in some deep way, they're experiencing it as that they're part of the conversation. And actually where we want to take it going forward is to figure out how to make that real, you know, and how to really allow the people to be talking to one another and talking to our guests and finding each other and finding new people in their communities that are creating these kinds of experiences, or maybe they're going to start being the creators of those experiences. But it all started because the technology allowed us to just do what we wanted to do. And then it turned out that there was this kind of silent majority or silent huge amount of people that also wanted it, but kind of like me felt like they were the only one or they were the only one that they knew. And so somehow what, what's so exciting to me and is that um, the technology has actually enabled me to imagine, I don't have it yet, but to imagine that there may be the Jewish community in the future that is the Jewish community that I really do want to be a part of. And, and that would have been inconceivable, I think. I don't think that there would have been any way that I would have been able to figure out how to do that if the technology hadn't facilitated it. Yeah, I mean, for me, the question of how the internet or how digital things have influenced my Judaism or influenced me, it's hard for me to answer, not because it's a bad question, it's a great question, but because it's like asking how air affects my life. Like, like, like for me, my, my profession is for a digital Jewish organization. My rabbinical school it, that I've, that, you know, I'm in for six years of my life is through digital mechanisms. Mostly we also gather in person. My, my Jewish social justice activism through If Not Now, which is probably my third biggest Jewish commitment. I'm in Providence where there's not, a, there's, we don't have an in-person group so much. We, we most, I'm mostly doing digital things. Like, it's not so much that the digital has influenced or affected my Jewish life as much as it is that the digital is my Jewish life. And I don't say that because I don't also have in-person spaces. I do. I'm a mem- I'm, I'm the rare Jew that is a member of a congregation in today's world. Um, I'm a member of a wonderful Reconstructionist congregation in Attleboro, Massachusetts. Hey, anybody listening? Um, and we go there and we enjoy it. But it's not my first, like my synagogue context and, and even, you know, other contexts in Providence's community that I love participating in and gain a lot from, like, they're actually at this point in my life, sort of the stuff I do to add the wonderful dressing on top of, of my life. Like the digital has, and it's not that I envision a world where everybody does that and where the digital, and like we flip the script and so that in-person is constantly for everyone separate. But for me, that's how it's worked out. And I don't, I see it as a value neutral piece. And so what I would, what I would, ask people to explore is just what are you look like what do you desire jewishly like wh- like what's the thing that you're not doing right now that you'd like to be doing jewishly and if it's in person amazing like go to it find it in my experience when people allow themselves to be specific enough about you know i am really curious to 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 engage in some delicious talmud learning with some queer folk, I mean, we've got, we've had people like 
Svara before, but if, like, like if you if you get specific enough, usually that specific thing you want is not available directly in your local community, but it is available online. And so my question is like, allow yourself to ask that question. Don't don't presume that because you're in a small town or even a big town with lots of Jewish institutions that the fact that you have these three or these 11 or these 34 Jewish buildings means that those are the things that you can do with your life Jewishly. Allow yourself to ask, can I, can I plug in a .com or a .org that, that also does that, that can supplement or be the primary source of, of what Jewish life looks like? And, and I think people are going to answer that in all sorts of different ways. But I think the, the end result will be a more thriving Jewish world, both online and in person, because it turns out that like one mitzvah leads to another, one Jewish faith leads to another, and the, on, the online leads to the in-person. We exist online and we end up being invited to places physically and gathering groups. And, and then that leads to, I mean, it, it's, all, it's all one cyclical piece together in building this thing we call Judaism. Wow, this has been... Uh... This has been great, guys. A really insightful uh, conversation. I, I really appreciate uh, your, your your time and and, and thoughts. And uh, keep it keep it up. Looking forward to uh, to future episodes. And uh, hope we uh, cross in the podcast world again. Thank Thanks you so for much. having us. Thanks so much to Dan and Lex. That was a great conversation. I am both pumped and kind of in deep thought mode. I didn't know both could happen at the uh, at the same time. If you haven't checked it out yet, I highly recommend checking out Judaism Unbound. I mean, there's so many episodes of this. I really liked uh, a recent interview they did with Rabbi Dan Ain, founder of Because Jewish. They they got into some really profound stuff and and kind of talked about rock music and religious the religious revival tradition in America in in the same breath so i highly recommend that as a as a jumping off point uh, to check them out and again um, tell your friends about us uh, we want to hear from you send us a message through trendingjewish.fireside.fm find us on iTunes Google Play Overcast Castro Podcast Addict rate us it it, it really helps people find the show And if you really like uh, what you've heard and want to promote our work and promote conversations about the Jewish future, go to reconstructingjudaism.org and click donate. It will help. So uh, thank you. Shalom. Lahitraot. Until next time, I'm Brian Schwartzman, and this is Trending Jewish, the Jewish podcast about everything. (laughs) 